This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Good morning, Equalizer Extra subscribers. It's time for another episode of the Equalizer Podcast. It is the milestone episode 50 of the Equalizer Podcast. My name is Dan Lawletta. John D. Halloran and Chelsea Bush are along for the ride here on the 50th episode. We've been going for just about a year now, and we just had the conclusion of the She Believes Cup, although it seems like a long time away because the last game was on Tuesday. The U.S. finished with a 1-0 win over Brazil. They already knew going in that they were not going to win the She Believes Cup because they had uh, seen England defeat Japan to wrap up the trophy. England got there. She believes medals after the match. U.S. wins one nothing. John and Chelsea, we'll start with Chelsea. Were you encouraged by the way the U.S. went out on a winning note in the She Believes after the first two games that drew an awful lot of criticism and both draws? Um, I mean, the win was, was nice. I think Brazil was the least impressive team at the, the tournament. So, you know, you have to take that into account. I'm more impressed. I'm pleased with that they played better. Um, they got a clean sheet, which was nice. Um, the midfield was was not perfect, but it was improved. I think with, with as we kind of all had been saying for a while with Sam Uis in it. Um, I would have, I thought their finishing was lacking, though. I definitely expected to put more away against Brazil, and I think the opportunities were there. Um, but so yeah, it was it was nice to win, but I'm more like I'm more pleased that they seemed to have a little slightly better idea of what they, they needed to do because there was seemed like there was an awful lot of confusion and miscommunication in the first two games. And this, this last one, it wasn't perfect, but it, it trended upward, I thought. But why did they allow Brazil to play Brazil's best game out of the three? Usually at the end of a tournament, there's the U.S. is the one whose fitness is showing and a team like Brazil is going the wrong way. And yeah, Brazil lost and they've now lost seven games in a row, which is pretty stunning. But why did why would they allow Brazil to play their best game of the three? Hmm, good question. I mean, do you think that the U.S. allowed it, or do you think that Brazil just kind of surprised them and maybe wasn't quite as, as out of fitness as they thought? Because remember, Brazil, didn't they have like a, a very long camp before this, right? 40 days or something like that? They did, and you bring up a good point. Maybe I'm just so conditioned to the fact that whatever the U.S. wants to do to Brazil, they tend to they're able to do it for the most part. But John, uh, with the U.S. dropping into their five back, and I know you guys talked about this last week, but you know it's not it's a little weird to see the U.S. try to see out a game by hanging on for dear life. Yeah, it's um, but I mean that's not different from what we've seen from Coach Ellis over the past 
you know, few years, really, she's seems to be just locked into this idea that, that she can figure something out or create some sort of tactical plan that's, that's superior to what she's already found, which is success in the four, three, three. And, you know, I think it ties into Chelsea's point in that the offense wasn't great in that, you know, yes, this was a better game. U.S. and and Sauerbrunn coming back certainly calmed things down, but, you know, you really got to look at their lack of offensive production. Um, one goal, which was less than than what either um, England or Japan put on Brazil. So they were certainly lack, lacking in that offensive end. I didn't think that they pressed as well. Um, I thought early in the tournament when they played their high pressure uh, defense, they did a better job of forcing turnovers. And I felt like that was lacking in this game. And then you know, I wonder if they ran out of gas a little bit, which, again, it seems unusual to your point. Um, but, you know, this is an older team, too, with a compressed schedule. So it makes me wonder um, if if Ellis noticed that and if she's going to create a, a rotation plan in the World Cup. I'm not really a big fan of squad rotation, but uh, looking at this last tournament, it might be something they, they want to use in the group stage because they certainly have the depth. Um up front, they have the depth in the midfield. They have uh, some depth in the back that they really could create kind of a three-game plan to get through that group stage and keep everybody fresh for the knockout rounds. And well, part- and- go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just gonna say it would help. I think too if if she utilized her substitutes a little bit better. I think yeah. Ellis has a tendency to use very late substitutes and to not use her full complement. And I get that you're wanting. <laughs> to sort of mimic the World Cup environment where you only get three sometimes, you know, and, and sometimes she, she sticks to that. But, the, you know, we've seen a lot of injuries on this team. And as you mentioned, it is an older team. And I, I just, you know, maybe not full rotation, but I just think giving these players a little bit more of a break would help. But I, I kind of wanted to, to say one more thing because you mentioned, you know, that the offensive production wasn't there as it had been previously. Do you think that this team that the way they play and the way they set up is just going to be one where if they want to to press the way they want to and they want to be offensively powerful, they're just going to have to give up goals because it seems like we only get one or the other. I think the way they're set up, it's not really conducive to a dominant back-to-front performance where you win three or four nothing. I, there's just too much space when they send players forward. I think there's too much space for Ertz to cover in the defensive midfield and when you especially when you take O'Hara out and you get Sonnet that's not really an up and down the flank type of right back and I think Crystal Dunn for whatever reason was exposed a lot defensively in this particular tournament I'm not writing her off as someone who can do it as a left back but I thought she was one of the worst players on the field Uh, I'm, I'm not sure they're set up in a way that promotes a dominant effort on both sides of the ball John what do you think I you know I I don't think they have to be, though, because the the way that they're set up, if they keep Ertz sitting in front of those center backs, even if they're sending their outside backs forward and even if they're pressing high with their front three, you've still got three players back there. You've still got Ertz who can break anything up. You know, Sauerbrunn, I don't think anybody would argue that she's as fleet of foot as she used to be, but she still reads the game as well as anyone. Um you know, I think you got a little bit of a decision at right center back, but you can still make that work if if Dunn and O'Hara are, are there and, and recovering into the play. You can certainly 
all you have to do if you're playing high pressure is stop counterattacks. You don't really have to have, you know, an ability to set up defensively necessarily. And if you're high pressuring in, with your front three, the other team's just going to get less chances. Um, so that there's almost kind of like a, you know, stay on the front foot so that the other team doesn't get those opportunities type of strategy as well. Because as a lot of people have mentioned, you know, the defense got this team through the 2015 World Cup. I don't think anybody thinks that the defense can get them through a World Cup this time. They're going to have to go into each game thinking we're going to need two or three goals. Yeah, and I think I think Ellis is, you know, I think she understands that because for a while there she really tried to do the play out of the back thing. It just wasn't working. She's really gone back to more, as you say, a high press and, and just try to break up counterattacks. The problem to me is they're not breaking up these counterattacks. Like, yeah. You know, I wonder if there's a there's an argument. It was funny because I remember I had a conversation in um, when when the U.S. played um, in Chicago against Brazil this summer, and I was talking to another reporter, and and um, this was kind of when Mewis had had first kind of fallen out of favor. You know, she had missed the spring because she was hurt, but by the time we got to July, she was back in form with North Carolina, but she hadn't gotten her minutes back with the U.S. and Somebody had said, you know, is is it that Haran and Mewis are too similar in nature um, to be played together, you know, and that using a player like Lavelle, you know, gives the team a little bit more of a dynamic flair. But at the same time, if you're if you know that your back line is a little weaker, don't you want two players in there like like Mewis and Haran that can, you know, tackle and break plays up and give you a little bit more. Uh, physicality in that middle, and then just let your front three do their thing. Like Rapino and Morgan and Heath and Press, you know, when and where she fits in there. If that's not enough attacking to, to get the job done, then it doesn't exist. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I also thought in terms of the attack that Ertz, when, again, especially when O'Hara was not in there on the right side, that teams have started to realize that if you – get numbers quickly around Ertz when she gets the ball at her feet, that's going to cause a problem yeah. for the U.S. moving forward because there's nobody else there to give the ball to at that point. And again, it, you know, Dunn needs to figure out whether this was just a bad tournament or whether she needs to spend a little bit less time forward or pinched in because she got beat, at least in part, on three of the four goals the U.S. gave up, and Sonnet basically doesn't go forward. So those flank players aren't there, and if Ertz has the ball and the other midfielders are 10, 15 yards ahead, then that's then Ertz is kind of on an island. And I thought Ertz struggled a little bit in this tournament, and it was more because of the setup than because of anything she was specifically doing or not doing. She did. She struggled in possession. She lost it a lot, especially in that last game. But um, I do think that that's where Mewis helped make things a little bit better because she tends to play a little further back. Like when they did that, that Pew-Lavelle combo, I think a big reason that didn't work was because of what you were talking about, how the lines were just too spread out and they didn't have that eight. So maybe if they play with Haran and Mewis, that kind of keeps things a little more settled down. They can sit a little bit deeper um, and help out. Since we got Mewis into the discussion, uh, you guys both know that I'm a very big Sam Mewis fan. I didn't think she played as well as other people thought in that Brazil match, but I thought the dynamic she brought to the team was really remarkable because she, as you say, she can drop back. There was one time she went ahead on the left and that allowed 
Rapino to kind of drop in a little bit. And I just think that she offers so many different things. And if you watch when she came in the England match, she immediately got into a little tic-tac-toe session with, I think it was Rapino and Morgan, and that allowed the U.S. to beat four or five English defenders down the field immediately and create a scoring chance. There's nobody else on this team that does that. Yeah, I think that when, when she came into the England game, the change, and maybe it was because we'd seen so much of the Pew-Lavelle combo that, that the change was much more obvious, I thought, against England than against Brazil. I, I agree. She, it, I think it was better. The midfield wasn't better, and, and I think she's a huge part of that, but she, she could have done some things better. And I don't know if that's just maybe figuring out a little bit more communication with the team because she hasn't played as much recently or, or just because the general kind of struggles that the, most of the team had. Um, but I, I I just can't argue for not putting Sam Ewis on the field whenever she's available, in my opinion. Now, I had heard some whispers heading into this tournament that she wasn't even locked into the 23 for France. Do we think she played her way into a locked-in position? She has to. Who else do you know? You said besides Haran, who else provides that box-to-box role? It's absolute madness if she's not. <laughs> yeah, there's nobody else out there. I think you have to say she did, though, because Cerboni didn't play, Sullivan didn't play. So it's not like they did themselves any favors. Well, yeah, so and she's a different else player than up. them anyway. Right, but I'm just saying, if you're looking for other midfielders that are going to be on there ahead of her, those are two that didn't play, and Colaprico got hurt, and I think she's probably, whatever number the pool is, I think Colaprico is probably the last player in line right now. Yeah. You know, Mewis is more dynamic than Colaprico. She's more dynamic than Allie Long. She's more dynamic than McCall Zerboni. She's more dynamic than Andy Sullivan. Um, she's probably more dynamic than, than Rose Lavelle. If you're looking at, you know, a, a full picture because Lavelle gives you, you know, some offensive punch, but she's certainly not going to win any tackles. She's not going to win any, you know, win any challenges, any balls in the air. Um, and Mewis can do everything. She can play more defensive. She can play more on the attack. She yep. can thread a ball. She can shoot from distance. It's like I said, it's just madness that, that she isn't higher up you know, in Jill Ellis's thought process. But all that said, are we possibly going into the World Cup where Kelly O'Hara is the most indispensable player on the roster right now? Maybe. Um, I mean, I think she's, she's worked her way up. I still think I'd take Becky Sauerbrunn if yeah. I had to choose between the two. Um, Probably so. Yeah. But I thought it was interesting how much more um, versatile Heath plays with O'Hara behind her. Yeah, I noticed when Sonnet would come in, Heath would drop much, much further back, but partially because Sonnet's not getting forward. And and they just, it really draws her away from where she needs to be. Um, I'm not a big fan of Sonnet outside back. I don't I haven't seen anything since her time there that really, on either side of the ball, that, that particularly impresses me. I don't think she gets forward. I think she gets beat uh, defending 1v1. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it similar to when... Mewis came into the England game. The difference between O'Hara and Sonnet and, you know, whatever games they, they substituted um, or whatever times was stark to me. It was just an immediate change. And it's not, it's not just that, that, that she gets forward. I think Keith and O'Hara have developed a really, really good partnership. And I think for those flank players, that's particularly important. And they seem to have a very good instinct of, as to where one's going to be, um, and, you know, when they're going to overlap, when one's going to pinch in, things like that. 
and playing uh-huh. a natural outside back at outside back again that's you know if, if and I agree with Chelsea Sonnet is not good there play Casey short or give Merritt Matthias an opportunity because look Emily Sonnet might be a better overall player but she's not a better right back yeah the well, short short absence is mind-boggling too yeah, that's to me. That's up there with like the Sam Lewis thing. Like, it just doesn't make any sense why Shore is stuck on the bench. All right. Well, we're five games down, five games to go between the start of the year and the World Cup. Probably two more games till we get our 23 woman roster for France. Uh, when we come back, we'll do a little bit more about she believes and uh, player rotation, yay or nay, and also uh, the U.S. women's national team will be back in the courtroom against their bosses, the U.S. Soccer Federation. This is the episode 50 of the Equalizer podcast. on episode 50 of the Equalizer podcast and a friendly reminder to please rate and review this podcast if you love it, want more people to discover good women's soccer content. It's a huge help to have your positive reviews about what we're doing. Rating and reviewing the podcast will help make it easier for others to discover it on your favorite listening platform. So if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review the Equalizer podcast. Dan with Chelsea and John, and uh, we'll wrap up our She Believes conversation by just a note that we've mentioned that Sullivan didn't play, Zerboni didn't play, Emily Fox, who was the late addition, didn't play. I have to assume that Colaprico, who was the one that got hurt and came out for Fox, wouldn't have played just based on substitution patterns. Short didn't play. If we're trying to fill out the roster of 23, Chelsea, then why are we only getting rotation of 16 or 17? Or is it just so confusing with what we're doing on a day-to-day, game-to-game basis that bubble players are, you know, kind of residual effect of that? Um, I I think it's twofold. I think that Elsa's, you know, preferred handful of of 11 plus, you know, three maybe did not execute the way she wanted to. So I think she gave them maybe a little bit more time. Um, but also, I, the one thing that I came out of this tournament convinced of was that she has a very good idea, generally, of what her 23 is going to be, uh, because she, I, she, she was not really giving any bubble players any chances to make their case, with maybe the exception, as you noted earlier, of Sam Mewis, which is stupid that she's a bubble player, but whatever. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that she has, she may not have it completely narrowed down, but I think she has a much better idea of her 23 than maybe any of us thought because this tournament to me was much more about getting her preferred players that are going to be starting the world cup that are going to be those first subs off the bench game time and getting them to do the things that she wanted them to do and i think to go back to your list you probably should add that had Alyssa Nair not been injured that ad french and ashlyn harris definitely would not have played either no for sure but i would like to say that that's as well as i've seen ashlyn harris play in a long time Oh, she was easily the best keeper of the three. And, yes. I mean, you can argue, yeah, she had Becky Sarabon in front of her, but still, uh, I think she did a very, very good job. Yeah, because I do not think she had a good season in Orlando. I'm surprised she's still – I'm not surprised, but I don't know that I think she should still be number two. Uh, John, you're, you're – well, yep, that's a very good point. I think if she 
I think if Franch had been the number two, she would have started the third game. Now, they might reshuffle the deck and she'll come out of it at number two, but I, don't, I think Harris was still number two based on the fact that she got that third game. Maybe. I think if anyone moved on the depth chart, it might be Harris. If either back into the two or, or kind of staked or claim of the two, if you're just basing it off these games, I'll, obviously Franch with one cap is not really a good sample size and obviously some nerves there. But, yeah, Harris had a very good game. And I don't want to get too off course here, but Harris, Ellis seems to want to play – where the keeper handles the ball a lot or has the ball at her feet a lot. Yeah. Harris of the three is by far the best at that particular skill. Doesn't make her the better keeper of the three, but she's the best suited to the way Ellis wants to play, no? Well, and that's been the weird thing about Alyssa Nair this entire time is they've been continually asking her to play a game that she's not comfortable playing. And, you know, I think she's gotten a little bit better, but for a long stretch, she looked like a keeper who was being told to be very aggressive off her line. And sometimes that resulted in like rugby tackles. And, John, is there anything to add? I know you're not as well, in favor of play rotation as we are and, and keepers also. Yeah, but, you know, it, well, I would say more so with keepers, especially with how limited the experience is. I think you make your decision and you stick with it, which is what Ellis did, and I give her credit because that's, you know, how I would have looked at it. But when those cracks started to appear and then there was still no rotation, at first you're trying to give your player confidence, which is, again, the right way to look at that because if that's your decision, then, you know, you want to say, hey, you made a mistake, you know, but we're not going to yank you. Um, but, you know, when it happens two, three, four times, then you start to wonder. But going back to your point that, you know, this is like one of those things that once you start to notice it, you're never going to not see it again. But the number of times that Alyssa Nayer plays the ball out of bounds on a back pass – Yes. Really stunning. And once you start to notice that, you'll see how often it happens. I think Dan and I have discussed that during games before, haven't we, Dan? First time I really noticed it was the 17 semifinal Red Stars in North Carolina. I think four of her might have been straight up goal kicks just went out of play. Well, it makes me wonder. A little bit different, though, because that was when she had the groin pull. And I think. Right. Yeah, that's that's a fair point. She might have been taking those left footed, I think, that game. It, and it makes me wonder if if Ellis had, had kind of recognized this, as you say, after, you know, three games, four games, five games, whatever, way back, you know, I guess in 17, had she brought Franch in at that time, had she, you know, developed Campbell Moore, had she looked at, at Caitlin Rowland or whoever, where we would be right now with goalkeepers. Yeah. Yeah, very true. I, I agree with John that you've got to make your call and ride it, but there was a long enough time that there should have been more keepers with more experience. It's a discussion we've had often now. And in, in not so pleasant news because results, while they could be unpleasant, they're just, they're just games. But now we're going to court again, the U S players association against U S soccer. And essentially it is um, a lawsuit where the players are suing U S soccer for the unfair disparity in wages with the, their male counterparts. And this has been a hot button issue for a long time. They had a, um, a separate complaint lodged in 2016 and essentially nothing was happening with that. So they decided to file the lawsuit. It's all the players that were on the She Believes roster and training roster, I believe, except for Emily Fox, who's still an amateur. And it also includes Morgan Bryan. Um, the two things that stand out to me are, or there's a couple things that stand out to me, and then I'll let you guys run with it. Um, first of all, there are certain elements of the treatment that are 
inexcusable. And that is things like, you know, meal money, which I think is now even, but charter flights and things like that. That's the sort of thing where there is no dispute. There should be zero dispute that both teams should be treated completely equally. Where it gets complicated is that the men and the women, A, negotiate their contracts separately. So I don't know that U.S. soccer needs to say to one side, well, you know, the other side got this, so we should give that to you also if the negotiations are separate. But the women do have some things that the men don't have. Is the disparity in wages too much to justify that? Probably so. The other thing is that there was this notion that after Hope Solo got booted off the national team and the lawyer that she sort of handpicked was kind of quietly replaced, and then they did the CBA, that the gloves were on again, so to speak, that, you know, you know, the worst of the fighting was over and that this is the first time that the players in mass have done something like this in the post hope solo era, I think says a lot because I think we thought things were heading in the right direction in terms of players versus the Federation. This is a sign that maybe they're not John feel I, free to up oh, Chelsea. Go ahead. Oh no, if you're going to go to John, go ahead. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I don't want to be rude. Sorry. Well, a couple of things. Um, my understanding, and I spoke to a labor lawyer last night about this, is that the the EEOC complaint, um, it was this isn't necessarily a like a separate venue that when the EEOC issued the right to sue um, last month, that that's what um, allowed them to then have the standing to sue in federal court. So I'm not positive, but based on my conversations um, with this with this labor lawyer, that this is kind of a continuous path. It's just being moved from one venue into another, as is fairly typical. Um, the other thing is, is that it, I agree with Dan completely. Like, I don't think there is a justification when it comes to um, disparate uh, facilities or treatment or flights or however you want to you want to put that. Um, the question I think the, the the interesting question and the one that I'd really love to see uh, the Federation's books on uh, with regards to pay and revenue, because the one revenue statistic that was in the complaint, I read the complaint yesterday, uh, was taken from fiscal year 2016, um, which included the 2015 World Cup, which would have, of course, been a very heavy revenue year for the women's team, but then, of course, did not include the fiscal year 2015, which would have included the Men's World Cup, or fiscal year 2017, which would have included um, the, um, not the Confederate, uh, Copa America. So they really cherry-picked that data. And I, again, you know, it, it's tough to get this information except for when these lawsuits come out, which is kind of one of the nice things, you know, from us um, being able to see these numbers. But that is uh, an interesting one. And then would the U.S. women's players really be okay with getting rid of the guaranteed contracts and going to a per call-up system? Because, of course, even though they're paid less um, in, a, in a comparative way, they have more security than the men's players do. Chelsea, all of a sudden you're doing nothing now? No, I, I just wanted to make sure you were – I didn't want to butt in again. <laughs> um, I was going to say – Two things. One, I, I think, you know, you mentioned them being quiet for a while. I think that doing this on International Women's Day, doing this three months out from the World Cup, I think was a very strategic decision yep. when they're, they're already going to have a lot of eyes on them. I think they've probably been waiting on this for a little while. Um, 
And another, t- I, I don't, I, I think, okay, a couple things, I think. Um, I, I think that, number one, they do not want to get rid of the, the contracts, and I think that's where they're kind of asking for their, their you know, trying to have their cake and eat it too. Right. Um, you can't have it both ways. Until they want to go to a pay scale like the men's, you you should. They need to stop comparing the two. Um, I do agree. Anything as far as like um, charter flights, meal allowances, field surfaces, um, meal, you know, game game winning bonuses, whatever it is, that should be equal. But I don't think it should ever come down to revenue because I mean, U.S. soccer is a nonprofit. Correct. To me, this is much more. It's the right thing to do. It, it does not. My job, I don't get paid because I bring in more revenue than the man who sits across the aisle for me. You know, I don't think that I think the revenue argument is just a very handy thing to have when it sits in one's favor um, or when it's it makes you look, you know, you can say, oh, well, we bring in more revenue. Why don't we get paid more? I just don't think that's a strong argument for either side to make. And I also think they're not doing themselves or not making themselves look very good by saying, well, we're more successful than the men so we should get paid more i don't think that's a very good argument to make i think your argument for discrimination is that you're doing the same job you should be treated equally yeah um, I, it's, go ahead i was gonna say that's been my point for a long time and i feel like carly lloyd usually um says it when she gets quoted on these things where she always says something like uh, you know with all of our unprecedented success on the field we deserve to be paid our due share. And I feel like that's a dangerous way to go because let's suppose they stop being better than the men. Let's say the women lose <laughs> in the quarterfinals and in okay. four years we're sitting here and the men are the World Cup champions. I know that's really far-fetched at this point in time, but you don't want to tie this to being successful on the field. You want to tie it to the fact that you're doing the same thing that the men are doing, which is representing the country and the federation at the highest levels of soccer available. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to talk about Ellis getting paid significantly less for winning World Cup than the men's coaches, then we, I think we could have we have a much stronger argument because I think that is is much more tied into to the job that she's doing and the success that she's bringing. But as far as the players go, yeah, it, it just you treat them equally and the story. That's that's what that's the definition of gender discrimination is not treating people equally, specifically based on gender. And it seems to me that's what they're they've been doing. And um, a missing element here, too, is that U.S. soccer is pretty ruthless. They're not going to comment. They're not going, they're unlikely to settle. They're unlikely, they can't, like, they don't, it doesn't seem like public perception matters to U.S. soccer. As long as they're still filling buildings and doing what they do, and yeah, they're a nonprofit, but they still operate in a way that tries to maximize revenue. I don't see U.S. soccer caving here, even if they're in the, even if they lose in the court of public opinion. And on that note, we will uh, <laughs> conclude this lovely discussion about the U.S. players taking their bosses to court. Remember before the uh, last time it was the Federation that preemptively sued the Players Association. So lots of litigation going on as we head toward the World Cup. Hopefully players can let that go play their best soccer this summer in France. We'll be back with your questions on episode 50 of the Equalizer podcast.
Episode 50. Hard to believe we are 50 episodes into the Equalizer podcast. Dan with Chelsea and John taking your questions at hashtag EQZPod. And we'll start with Brandon Holmes from the midweek. Who is the USWNT's number one bubble wrap player, meaning the player the team desperately needs to stay healthy leading up to the World Cup? I think we all agree that when Ertz comes out of the lineup, things change for the worse. I do agree. I think the one thing about that is that Zerboni can probably do that job if you need her to, maybe not quite as well, but um, I, I don't know. Sauerbrunn, you guys made a good case for Sauerbrunn earlier on today. Yes, and even O'Hara, to be yeah. honest. Yeah, I, I think if I had to pick one, it's still, it's still Becky Sauerbrunn. I think I'm starting to lean in that direction, but I think if the, mid, I think if the midfield plays better, a sour a back line without Sauerbrunn can be better than it was in the first two she believes games. Fair or no? That yeah, that that's fair. I uh, I don't know that's going to happen, but it's fair. It was last year that people forget they won the 2018 she believes cup with Davidson and Dahlkemper as the center back combination. Yeah, that's true. It, that's true. It said Davidson was playing much 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 better. Yep. Uh, Kerry Paraleski. Just wondering if a discussion about the differences in coaching salaries between the men's team and the women's team could be used to further emphasize inequality. We touched on that briefly in the last segment. I think the answer here is absolutely. But when you're just talking about Jill Ellis versus Jurgen Klinsmann or now Greg Berhalter, I don't, you know, you're, I don't know that you can really go to court with that particular thing. I think you, I think you're going to get a, you're going to get a lot further with a big group of the players as opposed to, um, you know, just one coach versus another. I, they did put up recently, it was published, their salaries, and it's, it's stunning. It's insulting, honestly, what Jill Ellis makes compared to what Klinsman made and Bruce Arena made while Klinsman was still getting paid and now what Berhalter's making. Yeah, Klinsman made, or I'm sorry, Arena made four times what Ellis makes, and Klinsman made 11 times what she makes. Yeah, and Arena was coming in to clean up a mess, and Ellis got a contract extension after winning the World Cup. Yeah. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Chelsea, you want to add anything on the coaches' pay disparity? Nah, you know, I kind of brought it up before. I disagree with what y'all said. Ian R. is Sky Blue FC making good on its recent promises to improve player conditions? Great question. I don't know that we have a firm answer on that. They've expanded some staff. They've got a pretty good setup, it sounds like, for preseason. I'm actually going to be out there, not this week, but the week after that for a day. So I'll maybe get a little bit more of an answer then. But they said that uh, Tammy Murphy, the wife of their co-owner and governor of New Jersey, would be more hands-on, but she won't give an interview. Anytime you speak to someone at Sky Blue, they'll tell you that things are coming, but please don't say anything. So I don't know. It's tough. Tough to say. I don't know if anybody has any insight or, or thoughts at this point. Well, we've we've seen some of the pictures, at least some of the players' apartments, so at least right. some of the housing is good. It's about all that we know. And um, They've added some staff, seems like, too, right? Yeah. And last I heard, they don't have a full-time um, place to train throughout the summer. They were close to finalizing a deal for one, so I don't know what kind of place that is, or if that deal has been indeed finalized. Sticking with Ian, do you think NWSL would be better off pursuing 
markets that already have MLS teams, whether partnered with that team or independent, versus markets with no MLS presence. Chelsea, go ahead. I I don't want to you know say MLS specifically, but I think that going forward, we they need to continue to try and find partnerships with organizations that already have some sort of infrastructure set up, whether it's MLS, whether it's um, USL, whether it's a baseball team. Um, I think that we're going to move further and further away from independence just because those teams already have staff, facilities, uh, you know, training fields, all that stuff equipped to, to run a team. Um, it doesn't have to be MLS, but it, unless you're going to find an owner with – either a lot of knowledge or the impetus to bring in someone with a lot of knowledge of, of how a club is run and very deep pockets and willing to lose a lot of money for a while, um, then independence still going to be in the minority. Now, as far as the uh, markets, uh, that kind of goes hand in hand. If you're partnering with an MLS team, you're going to be in a market with an MLS team. John, you're in a market where there's an unaffiliated NWSL team, Chicago. I feel like, and it's in Chicago and it's in Seattle, where there were teams in the same market but unaffiliated. I almost feel like that's worse than an independent market in some ways because it's like stares you in the face that there are these two soccer teams that are not, for the most part, working in conjunction with each other. That's been the case at times um, here, but um, I will say that you would be hard-pressed to find anybody who wouldn't say that the Red Stars made a significant facility upgrade by by moving in um, to SeatGeek, which I'm a little... <laughs> I don't really want to use that name. <laughs> um, you know, it's... Uh, I think it's worked out positively for the Red Stars. But you're right. I mean, there's not an official attachment but it in kind of a very odd way it puts chicago even though they're an independent on par with the mls affiliated clubs with also not having to deal with there are there are negatives of this we've seen this in some markets there was a a significant period in houston where the players did not feel that they were treated anywhere near equal and kind of second class citizens there were complaints about orlando last year um and even even Utah, as as high as they started, you saw as the year kind of, you know, went along that 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 dynamic seemed to change a little bit, too. So I, an MLS affiliation is not a necessary uh, thing and it's not necessarily a home run. As far as specific markets go, I would still like to see a league like this find a market where they can be the sports story in that market. It would be a smaller market, and it might not be a flagship market for the league, but find a city where every single time you play, you leave the sports page. 5,000-seat stadium, I think there's possibilities that it could work. All right, Jess, thinking about Ellis's comments about Danny Coldaprico getting another look with the national team after missing the She Believes Cup. How do you see her fitting in with this team if she's in? Who's out? My honest opinion here is I don't see her fitting in with this team. Uh, hopefully, she's done enough to be in the mix for 2020. But there's probably what two games left to make the case, unless. And one of the things I always say about squad rotation, and we, you know, we get we're all up in arms as Zerboni didn't play and someone didn't play. We'd have no idea how they trained. They could have trained lousy, or they right. could have picked up a minor nick that's not enough for the team to make an announcement. They still dress them, put them on the bench. But unless that's going on, I don't see Cole Preco on this team. 
I think the thing is, is that she doesn't do anything that other players can't do. You know, it's not that she's not a quality player. She clearly is. Um, but can she do something that Sam Mewis or Lindsey Horan or Rose Lavelle or Julie Ertz or McCall Zerboni can't do? Um, I do think they'll take a sixth midfielder. So I don't know who that'll be. You know, will that be Allie Long? Will that be Morgan Bryan, who was allocated, um, even though she wasn't called into this more recent camp? Um, but you're right. She, she's in a tough spot. We, we talked about this before, and, and Equalizer's written about this, that, you know, if she gets in there, she'll probably be the last one. Chelsea, you think she's in or out? Uh, unfortunately, I think she's out. I do think she has something to add to this team. Um, I I, uh, I dropped my phone, sorry. I think that she plays the six, just uh, John's written on this before, like it's supposed to be played. Um, so I think she's a value. I just I think that missing this camp is really going to hurt her chances just because she wasn't able to, to make that case in training. All right, Jill Koshman, is Sophia Huerta reporting to camp for the Dash? Any info on if she's been traded? She, isn't she there? She is showing up, I believe, tomorrow, sometime today or tomorrow. And hasn't been traded. Um, would I be surprised if she was? Not necessarily, but that's where we are right now. And that actually looks like the end of our question and answer. I thought we had one more, but apparently we don't. Let me see if I can think we have one more. Might have a rogue one that didn't use the didn't use the hashtag. Let me see what I can find here. Thought there we go. Aaron Crosley, please use the hashtag next time, Aaron. But here we go. Um, no, lost it again. Thought. All right. This is a very professional product we got. You want me to read it for you? Today. No, I got to back up. Thanks. Thoughts on Tierney Davidson not getting allocated, even though she's been getting more recent minutes than some players who did receive an allocation. Uh, <laughs> that's a good question. John, you want to take this one first? Well, I it, it surprised a lot of us. I mean, I know that uh, that got reported a day or two after the draft um, because she left Stanford. And I can't remember what her degree was, but I do remember when I heard it, I had to look up what it was. Like, this is, <laughs> this, this is a brilliant person. And the fact that she left school a year early, and I'm sure felt a lot of pressure to do it um, because she wants to play in this World Cup and, and was probably, you know, maybe indirectly told or felt that if she didn't go pro that, you know, her chances of making this team would be diminished. Um, so she does that and then she's on, you know, even if she's on an NWSL max salary that puts her at around 40,000, um, that's, you know, unless she's getting some endorsement deals down the line or, you know, maybe by making the world cup team, you know, it, it works out in the future, but she left one of the best colleges in the country, um, for just a chance at making the team and no monetary guarantee. What gets me, this is another example of U.S. soccer using their influence for all the wrong reasons. The design of this is to offset NWSL teams having to pay salaries for the best players and to keep them in the United States. What possible justification do they have for not having one of your top three center backs very likely going to the World Cup to not be one of those players who gets paid to play in the league. The only thing I can come up with at this point is that she wasn't going to Europe 
because it would have had too much, it would have interfered too much with preparation for the World Cup. So there was no leverage in her case that would sway U.S. soccer and offer her a contract. I just don't understand why you wouldn't offer Tuna Davidson the contract to play in the league. Does, yeah. I don't get it at all. Financially, yeah. she's going to be fine. She's going to be paid for the World Cup, and she's going to be paid for the tour at the end of the World Cup. So especially if they win, she'll be fine, and she'll probably be allocated going forward. It's bullshit. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. It is. It is. I mean, honestly, she she is going to the World Cup. Unless she gets an injury, she's going to the World Cup. Like, I, I pretty, I'm going to put money on that right now. There should be no player at the World Cup who's no longer an amateur who doesn't get allocated. And the fact of the matter is, you look at it, you look at Morgan Bryan, Ali Long, I can almost say one of them probably not going to go, and they're allocated. See, I, problem with that is, why are they making the calls in December? Because I, I'm, like in December, it wouldn't have been that big of a deal that Morgan Bryan was allocated, but now it looks like she's completely out of the loop, but it's too late. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I don't know why they, they made that in December and then waited, you know, two months to tell us either. And I don't care. They haven't told us yet. Well, true. true. We told ourselves. Exactly. Um, even if, it, to my understanding, she knew before the draft, before she declared that, that she wasn't going to be allocated, it's still bullshit. It doesn't make any any rhyme or reason. She had been playing significant minutes prior to that, is still playing significant minutes, looks to be like she's going to be pretty heavily involved, even if she's not a starter. Um, she is that backup center back for the World Cup. It just doesn't, it's not right. And they also, didn't they go down from 23 allocations last year to 22 to the minimum? Yeah, I think yeah. so. So it's not like they don't have the room. Yeah, we a, know they have like billions of dollars lying around. They could, <laughs> come on, guys, come on. It's a bad look, and it's U.S. soccer using his leverage for all the wrong reasons here. Last one. Jax, and again, Jax, please use the EQZ pod hashtag in the future, but what do we need to see in the game against Australia to signal that we are ready for the World Cup? I, I can't answer this one because I don't know. And this is one of those games where do you lay it all out on the table? Does Australia lay it all out on the table? I don't really know. I know Australia had good results in their tournament, but I don't know how they looked, so I don't know what they need to work on. Um, I think that's very up in the air sort of thing. I and mean, who knows if they're ready for the world. You can argue last year they weren't ready for the World Cup until the knockout stage. Yeah, that's true. So I really don't know what to uh, how to answer that. I know, Chelsea, you're a, you and I are big Australia fans. So any anything on this one? Um, from an Australian point of view? Either, uh, either one. I think the U.S., I, I would like, just like to see more better communication and a better, stronger knowledge of what – whatever formation they're in, what their responsibilities are. Because I think we saw some players who just didn't seem to know what their responsibilities were on the pitch. Um, for Australia, I, I, I'm going to continue to say um, defensive stability because I think that's something they struggled with previously. I know they did really well in this tournament and no offense to the other teams in that tournament, but they were not on the same level. You're not talking about you know top 10 teams there. So I, I think some some real... Um, defensive discipline is what Australia needs to really continue to be successful. Get your questions in for future podcast Q&A segments by tweeting us to hashtag EQZPod. That's E-Q-Z-P-O-D. That's all the time we have on episode 50 for John D. Halloran and Chelsea Bush. I'm Dan Lawletta. Talk to you next week on the Equalizer podcast. 
Thank you for listening to the Equalizer Podcast. The views and opinions expressed are those of the hosts and do not necessarily represent those of Equalizer Soccer. We thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.